Welcome back. I'm Shane McClelland. I'm Lori Gum. And these are the Q Files. In this special Easter episode, we will be examining the lore, legend, and menu of, arguably, one of the most sacred events in Christianity, known as the Last Supper, the very basis of the Holy Eucharist, or Communion. But ultimately, we'll take a look at executions, and more importantly, that said, solitary, final dinners of the condemned we call the Last Meal. If you want tales of the Easter Bunny, chocolate eggs, and peeps, well, this isn't the place. Frankly, Easter ain't pretty. The story of the Last Supper on the night before Christ's crucifixion is reported in four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians. Many people assume that Jesus' Last Supper was a Seder, a ritual meal held in celebration of the Jewish holiday of Passover. And indeed, according to the Gospel of Mark 14.12, Jesus prepared for the Last Supper on the first day of unleavened bread when they sacrificed the Passover lamb. Because, oh yeah, remember, Jesus was a Jew. So what did they eat at the Last Supper besides lamb? Well, most likely, in addition, a bean stew, olives, bitter herbs, a fish sauce, unleavened bread, dates, and wine were likely on the menu. This was fitting of the Palestinian cuisine during Jesus' time, says Generoso Urcioli, author of a blog on ancient food. And they weren't sitting at any long rectangular table either. At the time in Palestine, Urcioli said... Food was placed on low tables and guests ate in reclining positions on floor cushions and carpets. But wait, isn't that iconic painting of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci historically correct? I mean, that's where all of us have gotten our image of what The Last Supper was like. Well, not only was da Vinci's interpretation of the sacred event inaccurate, during recent cleanings of the painting on a wall in a refectory in Milan, they uncovered more painted food items on the image of the table. Particularly interesting was a bowl of eel and some oranges. Remember, again, Jesus was a Jew, and eel is not kosher according to Old Testament and kashrut dietary laws. Not because it doesn't have scales or fins, but because its scales cannot be removed without tearing the skin of the fish. And hey, that's just Jewish law. I didn't write it. And furthermore, oranges were not widely consumed in Palestine during Jesus' time. So where did that eel and the oranges come from? Well, most likely da Vinci's own shopping lists, which he kept religiously. Seems it was one of his favorite food combinations and very likely may have been his very own Last Supper. It seems da Vinci used this iconic painting as his own culinary self-portrait. But ultimately, in the end, it wasn't the food they ate at the Last Supper that made the event religiously significant. There are two primary reasons that the dinner is remembered. One, for the mandi, or the foot washing of the disciples by Jesus. That is why traditionally the Thursday before Good Friday is called Maundy Thursday. It was a symbol of humility, humbleness, servanthood, and forgiveness. And there was another highlight. During the dinner, Jesus announced that one amongst them would betray him. When they asked who it would be, Jesus said, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. 
He then dipped a piece of bread in a dish and handed it to Judas. After Judas received the piece of bread, according to the Gospel of John, Satan entered into him. Judas would become the most notorious traitor in the history of Western civilization. And so it was. After dinner, Jesus retired to the Garden of Gethsemane. Soon thereafter, Judas led Roman soldiers to him, where he identified Jesus by kissing him and calling him rabbi. After learning that Jesus was to be crucified, Judas attempted to return the money he had been paid for his betrayal to the chief priests and committed suicide by hanging. Like we said, Easter ain't pretty. And there is yet another reason why the Last Supper is important. It gave rise to the very notion that a prisoner condemned to death deserved a last meal. The origin of the last meal is shadowy at best. In early France, the soon-to-be-executed were given a glass of rum. In 16th century England, the inmates shared a meal with the executioner. But the notion of the modern last meal has become Americanized. The last meal in modern times is inextricably tied to America and its deep relationship with capital punishment. According to author Linda R. Mayer, the American colonials would feast with their soon-to-be-executed prisoners as a sort of reconciliation. Executions were times of communal atonement, for the commission of a crime was a sign of the decadence of all and called for God's vengeance on the entire community. Everyone, not only the condemned, was asking for forgiveness through the meal. Certainly as an allusion to Passover and the Last Supper, the last meal signifies unity, forgiveness of sin, and gratitude for salvation through the blood sacrifice of execution. Mayer writes, The last meal idea within the American justice system is not a rule or a law, simply an official kindness for the condemned. For many years, and still today in some states, the last meal is shared by both the condemned headed to death and the warden, or technically, his executioner, like the early Americans. It was meant to absolve them both of what was about to happen. In most states today, the last meal requests of the soon-to-be-executed are honored. Except, of course, in Texas. In September 2011, the state of Texas abolished all special last meal requests after condemned prisoner and white supremacist Lawrence Russell Brewer requested a huge last meal. Brewer's last meal request was two chicken fried steaks, a triple meat bacon cheeseburger, three fajitas, fried okra, one pound of barbecue, half loaf of white bread, meat lover's pizza, one pint of bluebell vanilla ice cream, a slab of peanut butter fudge with crushed peanuts, and three root beers. He did not eat any of it, stating that he was not hungry. Almost immediately, the state of Texas abolished last meals. Effective immediately, no such accommodations will be made, Brad Livingstone, executive director of the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, said. They will receive the same meal served to other offenders on the unit. For the record, on June 7, 1998, Brewer, a white supremacist gang member, was convicted of chaining James Byrd, a black man, to the back fender of a pickup truck and dragging him to his death along a bumpy road in a case that shocked the nation for its brutality. Byrd, who remained conscious for most of his ordeal, was killed about halfway through the dragging when his body hit the edge of a culvert, severing his right arm and head. Because of his terrifying death and the brutal murder of another innocent we know all too well, 
the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hates Crimes Prevention Act was passed in 2009. At least a small amount of good came from this absolute whore. And going back to the original crucifixion of Jesus, there is no doubt that it was a political execution. And there is no doubt that the execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg was our own American political murder. Although it could be argued that all U.S. executions are political due to the racist and classist inequities that exist within our justice system. However, Julius Rosenberg was arrested on June 17, 1950, and accused of heading a spy ring that passed top-secret information concerning the atomic bomb to the Soviet Union. Because he wouldn't confess, the FBI also arrested his wife, Ethel, who they had no evidence of which they could convict her of espionage. And it was her brother, David Greenglass, who had turned them into the FBI to save his own wife, who had indeed turned over atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. The FBI's thinking was this. Maybe Julius wouldn't crack, but surely Ethel would. Because she had two young sons, and surely she wouldn't go to the death chamber with Julius and leave them behind. Well, she didn't crack. And Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, accused of disloyalty, proved, in the end, to be the most loyal to each other. After a well-publicized trial, followed by all of America in 1952, on June 19th, both of the Rosenbergs were to be executed at Sing Sing Prison in New York State. With only the hope of a pardon from President Dwight Eisenhower, which did not come, the lawyers for the Rosenbergs, who were Jewish, asked that each would not be executed on the Jewish Sabbath, as the 19th fell on a Friday and had been slated for 11 p.m., well after sundown, and the Sabbath began. The state agreed and announced that the executions would begin at 8 p.m., 20 minutes before Sabbath began. Julius went first. He died after the first electric shock. Ethel's execution did not go so smoothly. After she was given the normal course of three electric shocks, attendants removed the strapping and other equipment only to have doctors determine that Ethel's heart was still beating. Two more electric shocks were applied, and at the conclusion, eyewitnesses reported that smoke rose from her head. She died at 8.23 p.m., three minutes after the Sabbath had begun. Ethel Rosenberg's heart, it seemed, was making a statement. She would not go easily. In the latter part of the 20th century, it has been proven with the discovery of the Venona Papers that Julius did indeed send information to the Soviets, but it was basically designs for a high-tech radio and not of real atomic value. Ethel, whether she knew of her husband's actions or not, there is still no evidence of espionage or conspiracy. Interestingly enough, the two orphaned Rosenberg boys were adopted by Abel Maripol, who wrote the Billie Holiday classic song, Strange Fruit. Strange Fruit indeed. That song is the history of America. Neither Julius or Ethel received a last meal due to the last-minute rescheduling of their execution. And so, as Lori and I often do, we decided to gather for dinner, this time, to share some of the most odd, most notorious, and most interesting of last meals. This smells good. This is, um, so at the, you know, beginning at the dinner of our, 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 our last supper, our last meal celebration, um, I thought it was important that 
Um, what we have here is our first appetizer is roasted beets with uh, goat cheese crumbles. And <clears throat> if anyone prepares beets, you will know that your kitchen looks like a serial killer's crime scene if you try to make beets. And I thought because we are going to be talking about a lot of you know, condemned people who had their last meals. I think it's important to remember we're not trying to celebrate them. Um, most of them committed horrific acts. And I thought by having these beets uh, with uh, goat cheese that we could kind of, I know it sounds gross, but remember the blood that was spilled by these yeah. people before we sort of acknowledge yeah, yeah. the interesting. So, um it was a nice way to start the dinner to remember that with every one of these convicted killers and executed killers, there were victims. You know, it's it's weird to just imagine. It's, as much as we like food, just imagine it's going to be the last food you eat. Yeah. I mean, I don't... It'd be hard to pick, like... A last meal. Like the last thing I would taste and experience and I don't know. And the question of which came up very often in a lot of these stories is they didn't have an appetite. Yeah I, I, I mean I think sitting there you know like the day of or whatever. Like four hours or mm -hmm. six hours before you're probably not very hungry when it comes to... Yeah. I, I, I mean, but I guess, like, maybe after you've spent so much time on, like, death row, like, you know, it's coming, maybe you've accepted it more. So maybe you could be, like, theoretically. Obviously, some a lot of folks aren't, but, like, you're just kind of, like, ready for it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I have thought about mine at length. I think... Honest to God, I don't think there's anyone out there that hasn't thought about what their last meal would be. Right. You know, it's it's sort of a ubiquitous. And I'm very clear. Mine used to be pasta with olive oil and raw garlic. That's mm. it. I mean, a few capers. Yeah. Um. Now it is fifty raw Cape Cod oysters. That's it. That's I mean, it. that'd be fantastic. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, places like Texas mm -hmm. um, and all that have, have done away with the. They gave you last meal, but not what you request. Uh, right. But Ohio still does. Ohio still does. So I mean, if you're looking, you know, to commit heinous crimes, Ohio. If you're going to get executed, could be a good spot. Do it in Ohio. <laughs> I just don't, I, I feel like I'd want to be like, who is the chef? How is this being cooked? Because <laughs> it would depend, like, okay, well, if you do this really well, then I'll eat that. But if not, In other this. words, <laughs> I want a steak, but I want it rare. I will not eat a well-done steak. I'm sure they frown upon those kind of uh, yeah, like culinary uh, guidance. Or like, could I just cook it myself? Right. You know, <laughs> that's very interesting. I wonder if they let you cook your own meal. That's a very interesting thought. 
I mean, it's not like I would. Like, what would you do? You know, like, you're not gonna like sneak a knife away or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the. Uh, I can't remember his name. I'll have to look it up. But one of the funny last meals is a gentleman who ordered his meal on a piece of pecan pie. Mm-hmm. And at the end, he'd finished everything except the pecan pie. And, you know, they, the guards asked him, why aren't you eating your pecan pie? And he said, I'm saving it for later. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Humor until the end. Humor until the end. That's exactly right. And his pecan pie sat there. <clears throat> he never ate his pecan pie. That's literally another thing, though, where I'd be like, are you going to make a good pecan pie? Or is it going to be like pecan soup in a pie crust? Or is it going to be a store-bought from or Giant Eagle? Exactly. Like, is it going to be... Like, I don't want my last meal, but the last flavors in my mouth to be regret. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, not about the crime, but the meal. No, no, we're past that. We're... <laughs> Honestly, if I'm on death row, I don't regret what I did. Yeah. <laughs> just such an odd concept um and you know what we've talked about earlier in the show is that a lot of these were initially to be these last meals were between the warden and the condemned right there was that sense of you know kind of coming down from the last supper this idea of forgiveness and that um the warden would respect the dignity of the prisoner and the prisoner would respect the fact that this is what the warden had to do, and they would personally sort of absolve each other. Yeah. Um, and that was really how a lot of the last meals start. If you had a last meal, you'd have it with the warden. And I think, like, that's good, maybe even poetic or something. And it, what, I, what I was going to say um, is maybe something we should try to kind of get back to, right? Like, this idea that. You can be incarcerated or even can get condemned to death, and it's not necessarily like you're beyond dignity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I know I, I guess I have like a weird like I don't really like the death penalty, mm-hmm. but I understand that like I guess lots of folks do like the death penalty, but there there's I don't know I think you can do like absolutely awful things. But I think as a society, we need to still... Like, how does that reflect on us? I agree, totally. And I, I don't think that um, people... It's not, I was going to say redemption, but it's not even like about redemption or something. But it's not... Is it... You know, like, as a collective, us deciding that someone is worth death um, is kind of like a big step in a statement and it's like if we're going to do that then let's at least provide dignity even if it's not necessarily for the person being executed but like so we can still look at ourselves and say at least like we did it the best way possible best way possible that's right that's absolutely right and I actually I am a we've, I don't think we've ever talked Mm-mm. about this I am a vehement um I vehemently oppose the death penalty in any circumstance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think number one, my number one reason is the iniquity, the unequal. You know, this is not a uh, neutrally applied 
um, law um, or sentence, um, disproportionately people of color, disproportionately people in a lower economic strata. It, it's, it's really true. And, and then again, I will always say I would rather uh, let 10 guilty men go free than convict and execute one innocent man. And we're finding again and again, because of this inequity, those trials are not the trials they should have right. been. They're not defended well. Um, I think it, if if you're going to have a death penalty, you better do it better than how we're doing it now. And I think there should be only two cases where the death penalty applies, where I really believe that you are beyond being allowed to exist in this civilization, even uh -huh. with forgiveness and you know the idea that you know it's between them and God. I mean, they might have a chance to redeem themselves yeah. and become you know. Uh, a valuable um, member of society. However, I believe there are two cases where the death penalty should be applied. If applied with mm -hmm, what I said before, um, children and animals, mm -hmm. because they are both innocent. You kick a dog, a dog will run back to you. It, it is. It is when you violate that innocence of children yeah. and animals. Um, I think you are to a certain degree beyond. It's 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 irredeemable. It's irredeemable. It's irredeemable, and I think we should reserve it for those kind of situations um, where um, you have really taken advantage of um, the natural innocence of an animal. And uh, listen, I do. While being a vehement, you know, opposer of the death penalty, you set a dog on fire. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's death penalty worthy. I, I really do. I mean... I think a lot of folks, you know, would probably agree with you on that. I just, I guess, like, I don't know. I, I, I've just never really been in favor of the death penalty. No. Unless it's like, you know, it, it's like a libertarian kind of view of it applied to the death penalty. It's like, just kill them all, mm -hmm. if that's what we're doing, mm -hmm. right? Or, you know, since the system's aren't fair they aren't equal um it's not even it's not justice in any sense of the word and we can't be certain as we've proven time and time again that you even did the crime yeah absolutely so like maybe just don't do it it's like an all or nothing for me like if we're gonna do it I agree. just kill them all we'll just it's a horrible thing we do but it's what we do or just face the facts and stop doing it yeah yeah and then i think we go to kind of a higher moral question of the state do do we really want the state having the power to kill people you know that, that it doesn't just stop there it it is it is a it is right. a it's it's a state of mind it, it it's a it's a governing philosophy to have the right to you know something outside of war um or another combatant right um but i think we're really going down the wrong path when we give the state the power to kill people no, I, I mean, totally agree. I, where's the logic behind that? You're going to kill someone to prove it's bad to kill someone. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make sense. And it has been proven over and over again that the death penalty is not a deterrent in any way, shape, or form right. to, to um, murderous acts. So it really um, I mean, it needs to go away, yeah. and if not go away forever, um, needs to be reinvented um, with just popular rasa start over again mm -hmm. and think this through again because the way it's being used now um and has been notoriously used um is is 
abhorrent. It's yeah. abhorrent. Yeah, no, I, and that, I, that's like, I absolutely, like, to reiterate, I guess, um, there's just no situation I can think of where it's really like, okay, absolutely, you should die. Mm-hmm. Because, I don't know, I, you, you mentioned it, but like, this idea that, I don't know, maybe you're innocent. Right. And we, 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 you know, we just, we worked you through the system, which is designed to convict you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Regardless of anything else, it's designed. And then now we're going to kill you. And it's just like, I, I really don't ever feel comfortable with that. Yeah. No, I don't either. I really, really don't. Um, and, yeah. So, it's just such, such a shoddy application to such a serious action. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, I will agree as we go on DNA, uh, uh, um, DNA evidence is much more compelling um, and has probably freed as many people on death right. row as it's convicted them. Right. Um, you know, the Innocent Project and all that. And when you start seeing the numbers of people that, you know, were innocent and spent, right. you know, how many years on death row, it, it just, it, 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 if you don't think in hearing about something like that that we need to rethink this... You know, I just, I, I just don't, I just don't understand. And I mean, I guess like more overall, even if, even if we're hundred percent certain, like you are the person who did this, or you are the person who killed fifty other people. Right. I still like. There is a moment where we have to look at ourselves as a as a society and say, is this who we are? Yep. And I still like. For me, I can't reconcile that. Where it's like, well, you did a bad thing, so we're gonna kill you now. But, like, why? Like, why? It, it doesn't do anything. Like, does it maybe alleviate some grief or something? I guess maybe for some folks. But I think there's also this, like, I don't, I don't know. Like, we, we know families of people who have been victims of these crimes that are eligible for mm-hmm. the death penalty are often the same people arguing for leniency. Yeah. Oh, because they also the, don't think. That's right. That's right. You know, it, 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 it's not even like you have to forgive someone, but it's just like, it, do I want to be responsible for this? Absolutely. Do I want to be responsible for a murder myself? This family that's grieving because of a murder of a family member, right. do they want to... To then say, no, you have to die now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not you doing it, of course, but like, what, you know, is, is that on your conscience? And I would, I would, I think I would be like, I don't know, I guess... I guess, like, brass tacks, maybe I wouldn't really care that much. Well, and it's like, interesting if, if it did happen or something horrible like, happened to a, you know, to you or a sibling mm-hmm. or my parents or this and that, and it was horrific. I wonder how I would feel differently than I do now. But I think there's only one thing that the death penalty does, and it satisfies hum- the sense of human retribution. That's Period. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Absolutely. That's, so what's funny is, like, so if something like that did happen, like, I don't know, someone murders you or whatever, like... I can see myself being like, I'm going to destroy this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, like I, I get, I guess, the sense of like, I want my revenge. Yeah, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Yeah. But you know what? Here's the difference: eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But the very reason for government is to keep us from our passions, right. to keep us from our impulses to do things yeah. like that. The government's supposed to be the reasonable one in these situations. Yeah, this, but, but, I mean, yes, you're, you're correct, but we've proven that that is just often not the case.
Holy Disaster. Cow. Disaster. <laughs> Wine, there's, there's blood all over the table. <laughs> I haven't cropped wine in so long. I just thought it was a This is only like my second glass, too. That's just... Yeah, that's not bad. We, we contained it. Well, that gives me an opportunity to talk about... <laughs> take every disaster and turn it into an opportunity to talk. Um, that brings me uh, to talk about, um, speaking of wine, um, Adolf Eichmann, who okay. very much uh, was the orchestrator of the Holocaust with, you know, Nazi Germany. And uh, his last meal request was for a bottle of red wine. I mean, so I can get behind that. <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, that's a really, that's a really easy one. That's a really, really easy one to understand. A bottle of red wine and a pack of cigarettes. There you go. There you go. And, and, okay, hold that thought. Because what would go great, don't say it, <laughs> what would go great with a bottle of red wine, pack of cigarettes, and, hang on. Oh my gosh. Hang on. <laughs> the suspense. <laughs> Oh, you know this one. This one's not a big surprise. So it seems for sure to me that what would go oh, yes. perfect with a bottle of red wine <laughs> and a pack of cigarettes would be the last dinner of Victor Faguera. Okay, so uh, Victor Figuera um, did some horrible crimes. I mean, horrible. He killed two elderly people, uh, but one of the women, um, older woman, he strangled with her own her with her own Christmas tree lights on oh, Christmas no. Eve. So I mean, really a horrific crime. Well. Um, Victor Figuere is also notorious for this reason. He was the last individual that was executed in 1963 before the Supreme Court decision um, by Furman v. Georgia in 1972 that stopped federal executions. And when we get to dessert, we will talk about the next individual that was executed after those those you know, legal um, barriers were dropped and it could be, people could be executed again. So that gentleman is going to be, um, we're going to be uh, looking at his dessert his, for him. His. But uh, so Victor uh, Figuere wanted a single olive and specifically there had to be a pit in it because what he wanted to happen was that he was going to put this pit in his pocket uh -huh. And when he was buried, his decaying body would fertilize an olive tree, which is a symbol of peace, and that ultimately not only would he have peace, but he would bring peace to the world. I mean, that's very lovely. So that's why he ordered a single pit of olive. When they took him... I'm waiting on you to eat it. When, when they took him after the... the, the it was a lethal injection... 
once they took him, he had a new suit for lethal injection. That's always strange. I don't know why, uh, yeah. but they took him for the autopsy. Okay, they found the pit in the pocket of his jacket. Now, he was buried in a different suit, and I would just so love to know yeah. if they actually buried him with that pit. But you want me to tell you something that's so sad about Victor? If you're going to plant an olive tree, uh-huh. you have to get one from a, a, an olive from an olive tree. Uh, commercially processed olives are actually processed with lye, um, and they will not grow. So, so poor Victor's pit probably wasn't going to grow anyway. Well, enjoy. This is our appetizer, Victor F- Figueres olive. Olive. Tasty. No, it's good. We were pretty excited to get to our main course because, well, that olive wasn't really that filling. All right, are you ready? Yeah. We're cutting our vegetarian pizza. Mmm. How smells all garlicky? That garlic exploded. Okay, I think we're ready. <laughs> I think it's time for a second napkins. Yeah. <laughs> well, our first ones were um, deployed in, in wine, so. The Adolf Eichmann wine. <laughs> it seems only fitting. It does. But it ended up on the floor. <laughs> Which I, I feel like it's worthy of noting in all of these dinners. In all of the years that we've known each other, we've never spilled wine until that, tonight. That was the first time, right? And we're early into drinking. Like, it's, yeah, it's it was like, like it was it, our second glass. Yeah. I know. Okay, so I'm very excited about this. This is our main dish of the evening. This is um, vegetarian pizza because... Philip Ray Workman, who was uh, convicted of murder, uh, for murdering a police officer actually, um, he was executed on May 9, 2007. Um, what makes uh, Philip Workman interesting is that for his last meal, he chose a vegetarian pizza okay. to be given to a homeless person. Nice. The um, state of uh, Tennessee would not honor that. Oh, wow. So uh, the community in, in Tennessee um, got um, notice of this. So people started collecting money. They collected $1,200 okay. and fed over 200 people, homeless people, vegetarian pizzas in the name of Philip Workman. I mean, that's inspiring I mean listen if you've got to give your your um, you know your last meal away yeah I, I, and to the homeless I guess it, so going back to earlier like you know if, if we're reflecting on this as a society like what kind of people are just like no we're not gonna give this food to homeless people you know and and what does it cost you twelve dollars for right Domino's vegetarian or whatever right like what what was the big deal about not giving it to a homeless person I don't know that's exactly right and on top of that 
Uh, the people for the ethical treatment of animals also contributed because it was a vegetarian nice. people. <laughs> so Ingrid, uh, I think it's uh, Ingrid Newkirk, I think is the director. So she pitched in too, uh -huh. bought 20 pizzas and vegetarian pizzas. So we will say um, we don't condone what Philip Workman did, but in his <laughs> last action on earth, um, he chose to give food away to people that might not have enough food. So. We have a uh, tomato, basil, shiitake mushroom, Parmesan vegetarian pizza that we're about to eat. Also, I eat my pizza with a fork because even though my parents, parents spent a ton of money on my teeth, they don't mean. It's as delightful as it smelled. That's pretty good. <laughs> Got the nice basil taste there. A little pepperoncini and some mm -hmm. capers. But you know, so when we talk about the death penalty and the idea that the death penalty says philosophically that people are unredeemable. Right. Right. I'm not saying offering a single pizza to a homeless person is redemption. Right. But even that murderous person in his last act on earth could have some empathy for hungry homeless people. That that's again there is some hope. Um Absolutely. That people can be redeemed. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't like. I don't know what other word we would use besides like redemption or whatever. But it's the idea that you know, perhaps people aren't fundamentally evil, and that there is you know, and you've done something dark, and in your darkest hour, you're not thinking about yourself. Mm -hmm. You're like what. What is one last thing I could do? And I, I think that's worthy of note. And honestly, that's why we chose vegetarian pizza to be our entree tonight for our last supper supper. Where you start getting in, into like this philosophical idea of like, you know, I mean, not to like last meal it too much, but like, that's the, the the Jesus idea. Absolutely. Like this is this is what you should do. And <clears throat> as we have talked in this episode already to a certain extent, the difference between a last supper and a last meal is because a last supper generally you don't know it's going to be your last meal. Right. But when you figure that in the entirety of Western more orthodox Christianity, but you know, even is translated down to Methodism and all those sort of things. You know, Christ said this this food, this is my body, this is my blood. Um, and that's what the, the Eucharist is based, communion is based on the last meal. Right. The last meal. I mean, like the entire basis of our morality and laws you know, like by and large. Mm-hmm are stemming from these moments and I don't know just like 
saying no, I'm not gonna give a pizza to a homeless person. Just like flies in the face of that so much. And in Tennessee, a state that's always holy rolling, holy rollering, what a Christian thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you won't honor this Christian. It's like final request. Yeah. Nearly, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless, that's darn tasty. <laughs> oh, the pizza's good? The salad's good? I lost my fork somewhere oh. along the way. <laughs> well, let's not forget. Let's not forget. You know, self-loathing loathing St. Paul, our favorite, right. was a murderer. He was a murderer before he came to Christ or all that he did. He was a murderer. Yeah. You know, what if we had exacted upon him what is exacted upon everybody else? He would have been executed. There would have mm -hmm. been no St. Paul, and there probably would not have been Christianity as we know it. Which is kind of groundbreaking in that mm -hmm. regard. Mm -hmm. Although, what we believe historically happened or not. Like, yeah, I mean, the story. The story. By, by the standard, Paul would have been one of those unredeemable people mm -hmm. that we executed. So why isn't that the model of, you know, American Christianity and all those things? Why is not Paul the model for the discussion of executions? Instead of really the Old Testament talking about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Um, I mean, I'm going to be honest, I don't really... I know a lot about this, but I don't know enough about that particular part of it. Um, I guess to really like speak intelligently on this, right? But I do find it interesting that we've disregarded some of these stories, and maybe not everyone has. Maybe there is a um, denomination that you know draws their views from like a story of Paul mm -hmm. or something, right? Like on their death, death penalty or something. But. I think it's like, you know, by and large, like we ignore these examples that would lead us in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And it becomes about punishment and retribution rather than forgiveness, mm -hmm. which to me has always been weird because it's like the entire story of Christ is about forgiveness. Oh, that's, that is the story. The Last Supper, the resurrection, it is about forgiveness. Right. So why isn't that, why, why does not, if we're such a Christian country, why are not evangelicals up in arms about a death penalty? And I mean, you know, by and large, like the, the conversation focuses around what folks, you know, refer to as like social issues or whatever. And the death penalty hasn't really been a social issue. Mm -hmm. Probably really ever, but... I can't even think of the case, but like the Supreme Court was like, no more death penalty. It was like in the 70s, I think. Furman v. Georgia, 1972. I just want to say Lori did not go to law school, and I mortgaged my soul to do that. Um, so <laughs> 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 but anyway, we have the answer. Um, <laughs> not better. That's fine. Um, <laughs> but like, the conversation around that, like, you would think at this point, 50 years ago, 
would that become a social issue? And it's not, because we just went, went, well, we'll just reinstate it slowly. Yes, and what happens is, it's interesting, so what the, the most recent Supreme Court argument was, whether or not one of the components of the lethal injection, so we start breaking it down to the components and the drugs in the lethal injection and to whether or not you know that's humane instead of the issue of of whether or not execution is right really so we start we have you know scientists and doctors talking about no this makes you it is used as an anesthetic there, there, there it will numb you when it happens that's right that's right you don't have to worry about how it feels or what it does they're yeah. they're asleep but what we know what we know is that sure that happens sometimes other times, you're not asleep. You're no. paralyzed. And we've seen this in how many executions mm-hmm. that have been botched, how many executions where people were. Because here's what happens. If, if you don't know what happens in lethal injection, there's a first calming drug, basically puts you to sleep, supposedly. The next one stops your heart right. and your lungs, and the other one creates paralysis. If those things don't happen in the way that they're supposed to happen, you have an agonizing death. Right. Now, people will say... Well, I think it's important to note at that point, you have an agonizing death that most often no one knows about but you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we only know about it Mm -hmm. through, like, technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, you're experiencing distress. Right. And you should not be because you should not be experiencing anything. Or... The accounts where people didn't, the calming didn't work. Yeah, well, so, so they're they're being, their lungs and their heart are being stopped, and you can see them gasping for mm-hmm. it. The, the calming part the didn't struggle. work. Yeah, um, this has happened. You know, in the last fifteen years, an extraordinarily uh, a large amount of times. Um, but you know, it's so fascinating to me because a botched execution. And the witnesses in a botched execution and the, the press coverage of that. We'll start this conversation about the death penalty all over and over. Mm-hmm. It's never about the death penalty itself. It's about whether or not it's a humane way of killing. Here's my theory. I think the firing squad was the most humane of all of any executions. Sorry, oh my God. having a conversation when you're eating is awful. Um, we do it all the time, don't we? <laughs> but no, I mean, the, the, the firing squad, more often than not, I'm sure there's awful examples, but the point of each of those bullets was to strike you in a way that would kill you instantly. Mm-hmm. So there was n- often not suffering or delayed death. No, you slipped down the... Mm-hmm. You were gone. Mm-hmm. There are no... Historical accounts of people lingering after a firing squad. Right. So, but I go back to this. Is the real discussion about being humane or is the real discussion about whether or not we should be killing people? I think we get sidetracked by the humane issue. We, we absolutely do. I mean... Is it humane? It doesn't matter how you kill them. It's inhumane. That's, um... I don't know, we can cut this, but not to preview too much. Um, with Hester Foster, the first woman executed in Ohio, after that execution, the Ohio Ohio State Journal, State House Journal, 
or whatever, called for the ending of executions. And what they got was the ending of public there you go. executions. There so you they just didn't go. kill people in public anymore. They just did it behind the prison walls so no one could see it to be disturbed by it. Exactly. And I have said for 40 years, these executions should be on television. Like, this is what we want to do. Watch it. Watch it. If, if you want to be and you agree with this and you as a citizen agree with this, then watch it. It's like watching your meat get killed. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but knowing where your meat came from. Like, if you think this is fine, then watch it. Then watch it. But, you know, of course, as with Hester Foster, when they were public, people treated it like a a fair and a picnic and people got trampled. And, um, you know. I mean, to be fair, they they weren't, (laughs) the the newspaper, whichever it was called, um, wasn't necessarily upset that people were killed. They... Were, you know, they were calling for the end of the executions, but they were specifically calling for the, the end of the executions because people died at the execution right. that weren't supposed to die. Right. Um, <laughs> which is probably notable that... What a better shame than <laughs> that. Right? I mean, it's just... I don't know. It's, it's all... I guess for me, it's just like it highlights the incongruity of executing people. I couldn't... The incongruity. It's like, how can we hold within us these mutually contradictory ideas? Oh no, people died at an execution. Oh no, the wrong people died at an execution. Wrong people died at an execution. That's right. Our next course was, well, something Lori wasn't quite prepared for. Alright. Are you ready for your SpaghettiOs? I'm ready for my SpaghettiOs, Mom. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I can't, I don't even know the last time I've had SpaghettiOs. I'm going to be completely honest with you. You've never had them? I don't think I've ever had SpaghettiOs. I don't, they weren't like a fixture of my youth, but like it was definitely something we had. Yeah, I think these came a little later than my childhood. Um, You've really never had them? I don't think I've ever had (laughs) SpaghettiOs. Well... Okay. Get ready for a tomato-y disappointment. <laughs> I'll put a little cheese on that, too. Oh, don't don't dress it up. Okay, yeah, you're right. Don't no, dress you, it up. You can do it after. I'll do it like... after. Okay. So, this is one of my favorite stories. Okay? okay? You can already smell how awful it is. You can, it smells <laughs> sweet and gross. Yes. Yeah, it smells sweet and gross. So, the reason that we're having SpaghettiOs as our second course, is because of Thomas J. Grasso, okay? Um, And he actually killed two elderly people in different states, a good, not a good, not a good man. He actually ordered, you ready? I'm curious. Two dozen steamed mussels. Okay. Two dozen steamed clams with a lemon wedge. Okay. A double cheeseburger from Burger King. Half a dozen barbecued spare ribs. Two strawberry milkshakes, half a pumpkin pie with whipped cream and diced strawberries. Okay. And spaghettios. Well, what happened was when he was served his last meal, they served him spaghetti instead. Oh no. So when he was on the lethal, what year was he? Um, I'm not sure what year it was. 
1995. Okay. In Oklahoma. Uh So they have him strapped to the, you know, before the lethal injection table. His last words were, I ordered SpaghettiOs. I didn't get SpaghettiOs. (laughs) I think the press needs to know this. Uh, You know, honestly, I agree. (laughs) So, (laughs) we are eating Thomas Grasso's SpaghettiOs. Here's to you, Tom. Oh. Oh. (laughs) You know me. I can eat anything. I eat insects. We have eaten everything. (laughs) This is inedible. (laughs) This was... I didn't know you've never had them. This was his last words that he didn't get this? He was upset over this. The youngest person ever executed in the U.S. was George Stinney Jr. He was just 14 years old when he was executed in South Carolina in 1944 in the midst of the Jim Crow era. It took a jury of eight white men 10 minutes to convict him and 70 years to exonerate him. Two young white girls had been found brutally murdered, beaten over the head with a railroad spike and dumped into a waterlogged ditch. Stinney and his little sister, who were black, were said to be the last ones to see them alive. And that was about the only evidence they used to send young Stinney to the electric chair. The police claimed he had confessed. But during the time of his incarceration and trial, he was not allowed to see either of his parents nor any family members and was not represented by an attorney when the interrogations were conducted. By the time of his trial... Stinney hadn't seen his parents in weeks, and they were too afraid of getting attacked by the white mob to come to the courthouse. So 14-year-old Stinney was surrounded by strangers, 1,500 of them. On June 16, 1944, George Stinney Jr. walked into the execution chamber at the South Carolina State Penitentiary in Columbia with a Bible tucked under his arm. He was barely five feet tall and not yet 100 pounds. The electric chair straps were too big for his frail body. Newspapers at the time reported he had to sit on books to reach the headpiece. And when the switch was flipped, 2,400 volts surged through Stinney's body and the convulsions knocked down the large mask, exposing his tearful face to the crowd. George Stinney Jr. spoke no final words. His conviction was overturned in 2014. As it was noted for the first time during the retrial, Stinney had admitted to another inmate that they had starved him for two days and that the sheriff would only give him food upon his admission of guilt. By all available evidence we have today, Stinney confessed only because he was hungry. As we look towards Easter Sunday, many of us contemplating the passion of Christ, his suffering, and his resurrection, might we also suggest that we remember, too, the agony of young George Stinney, Jr. Join us next time for part two of The Last Supper. This show was created and produced by me, Shane McClelland, and Lori Gum. Until next time, friends. Be weird, stay curious. These are the Q-Files.